Hi, my name's Claire. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3? You'll find that on page 1157. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It would be great if you could have Ephesians 3 open. Where That's right, we're doing all of Ephesians 3 in one night. Uh, welcome, I'm one of the Rogers, I'm Roger Fitz. Uh, and we're working through this book of Ephesians at church together. And tonight I want to start by asking you why nobody loves you. Why does nobody love you? Uh, at the heart of what Paul prays uh, in this prayer is that Christian people who know the love of God would just be grounded, built up, powerful to grasp what the love of God is. Now, he takes a while to get there because he gets sidetracked. But the question that I think will hit the rubber, where the rubber hits the road for us will be, what does it mean to be loved? Now, I'm not going to quote Shakespeare. I'm not going to talk about chick flicks. All of these are very tempting for me. But to start with, it just, it strikes me as really really worthwhile to reflect for a moment on why it's so hard for you to believe that God really loves you. Yesterday I stood in this spot, it was Saturday, uh, and Dave and Megan were getting married. Dave and Megan aren't flowers, but um, the, the flowers were for their wedding. And 
as, um, as, as they faced each other and made these vows to love and cherish and honour each other until one of them dies, uh, Megan lost it for a little bit. And I was like, oh, that's well, disappointing and kind of good. She was overwhelmed by the, the depth of what was happening. Now, maybe she just hadn't eaten enough and maybe she was a bit tired and there were guest list issues or something. But I'm going to go with... She was standing in front of someone who just promised to treat her better than she deserves. To treat her... To love her no matter what. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. Now, whether you're married or not, uh, this is the promise that God has made to you in Jesus. That He loves you. Christ on the cross demonstrates the depth of God's love and commitment to you. And so we're going to think about, as we pray, why we don't pray a little bit more that our hearts would just get a grip on the great love of God. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at Paul's distraction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know that you do love us, and we pray tonight that as we look at your word, you would increase our understanding, our knowledge, our experience of your love for us, that we might know what it is to be loved by the sovereign Lord of all the earth, uh, that we might be a people who honour you with our whole lives, and so give glory to you. Amen. Okay, so uh, chapter 3, there's for this reason, is the key phrase in understanding how this chapter works. If you've got Ephesians 3 open, that's going to be really helpful for you. Uh, The chapter starts, chapter 3, verse 1, with, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he just rambles for a while. There's some very worthwhile stuff in the ramble. But if you cast your eyes down to chapter 3, verse 14, what do you get? For this reason. The first half of the chapter, so that whole column on the right-hand side, if you're using the church Bible, from verse 2, kind of after the dash at the end of verse 1, all the way down to the start of verse 14, has something to do with why or why not people pray. The reasons to pray or not. And I think uh, verse 13, at the end of that little section... (coughs) helps us understand. Verse 13 says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, Paul's about to model prayer for them. And whenever anyone says, now let me teach you to pray, immediately I think, what would you know? Let me teach you to pray. What right do you have to teach me to pray? And with Paul, you have every right to ask that question because he was singularly unimpressive. I don't know what he looked like. But his life was just kind of pathetic. He had been quite impressive in, in Jewish terms. But right now he was in prison. He was, as verse 1 puts it, a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Or of verse 13, he was suffering. Now, if you're going to be uh, a person who models your life on someone, perhaps someone who's a prisoner and suffering is not the one you want to model that life upon. 
So Paul takes a little while to say, listen, listen, just because I'm unimpressive doesn't mean prayer and the object of prayer, the reasons to pray, are unimpressive. There's a lot of good reasons to pray. There's a reason why you should pray for your heart to understand the love of God. The reasons for are pretty comprehensive uh, and I don't think all of them are listed in this little section. Uh, I can tell that because the chapter starts with, for this reason. Uh, He's really including all the things that have come before. The reasons for praying start right at the beginning of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10. Why pray? Because God has brought all things under the headship of Christ. So you pray about what the head wants. Chapter 1, verse 22 repeats the same idea. Chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, Why pray? Because all things are under Jesus' feet. He's the head over everything. And God's plan is for the church. So when we pray, it's going to have something to do with the head and the church. Chapter 2, verse 3. Why pray? For this reason. Well, you were, chapter 2, verse 3, objects of wrath. We all were. Why pray about the great love of God? Well, because, chapter 2, verse 5, because of his great love, God in his mercy made us alive with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, all by grace. It's not actually about what you've done that leads you to pray. It's about what God has done in Christ. Not only that, but chapter 2, verse 13 You used to be alienated from God, but now you've been brought near. You can pray because as a rightful son and heir, you can step into the throne room of God and call on your heavenly Father. Chapter 2, verse 18, you have access. You have access to God. It's not like you come into church and there's a big screen across the front. Well, there is a big screen, but it doesn't stop you from getting to God. It stops you from looking at the stained glass window, but it's kind of unimpressive at night. It's great in the morning. You'll see it on the 27th. There's nothing that hinders your access to God as much as you might feel there is. If the Spirit of God is in you, you have access to God by the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 18. And not only that, but like Roger talked to us last week, you've got a new passport. You're a citizen one of God's people, this new thing that God is doing. For this reason, Paul prays. Chapter 2, verse 22, and if you haven't looked at any of them so far, have a look at chapter 2, verse 22. 2, 22. The end of chapter 2 says, In Jesus, you are being built together to become a dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. What does that mean? That you are being, you plural, are being built together to become a dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. God doesn't live in this building. God lives in us, in all the Christians everywhere. That's the church. You are a dwelling. Do you remember that reading we had from Ezekiel about God changing hearts of stone that were stubborn against following God to hearts of flesh that were beating to follow Him? How God would rebuild desolate cities and make a proper city, not... He's not talking about a physical city. He's talking about us as a building, a bunch of people. A city is a network of relationships. 
God's great promise is that he will build his church and nothing will overcome it. So when we pray, we pray for the thing that is the closest to God's own heart. It's right for us when we come before God to get on board with what God is doing. I used to be a a primary school teacher and I used to coach a rugby team as part of that. It was one of my favourite things. Uh, Despite it being early on Saturday morning, so I got to coach primary school age boys playing rugby. And it's just hilarious because they're not that impressive physically, but they're so keen. And so during the week, you know, we'd practice our scrums and our line-outs and our backline moves. And it was, it was great. They're learning to work together, learning about, you know, how to tackle someone, push stuff around. They loved it. Uh, but come game time, uh, you know, there's that guy on the team that just decides he actually knows better than the rest of the team. And although he's kind of impressive, the fact that he chooses to go his own way just kind of wrecks it for everyone else. The show pony. Ah, I hate that guy. (laughs) Barnaby. Yeah. For the system to work, for the team to work, everyone's got to be pulling in the same direction. It's, It's a bit of a silly illustration. What I'm trying to say is when we pray, it makes sense to be praying the things that God, the one that we're praying to, cares the most about. What is it that God wants us to be praying? When Paul says, for this reason he prays, he doesn't want you to be dissuaded to pray because he's a bit of a gimp, a bit unimpressive, because he's suffering and has suffered all these setbacks. He wants you to raise your gaze to what God has done in the heavenly realm and go, okay, now I know what to pray. But in case you didn't know what to pray, in case you just wanted to know the vibe, Paul actually spells out what he's going to pray. Now, I'd like to hear the sound of people turning the page as we look at the second half of this uh, section. Verse 14 onward. Paul says, for this reason, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Notice the posture of prayer. You come before God and you're on your knees. What is the content of Paul's prayer? As Paul shows us what it is for us to come before God. He prays two things. Firstly, for hearts, and secondly, that we be filled. I just want to kind of get you to pause and think about, as we read this passage, uh, is this how you pray? Uh, If you're not a Christian, uh, the thing I care most about is that you put your trust in Jesus. He's worthy of your trust. Uh, You're dead to God without him. You should turn to him tonight, put your faith in him. But if you're a Christian... Uh, when you pray, what is it that, what do you pray about? Are you just praying about the weather and sick cats and other stuff like that? Or are you praying in line with what God wants? This is an example, it's not the only thing, but it's an example of the heart of prayer that we see in the New Testament. Firstly, hearts that are inhabited and empowered by Jesus. Look at verse 14 with me. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
It's a big, long sentence, is it? It's about your heart being strong by the power of God so that Christ will dwell in your heart. What does it mean for Jesus, the Messiah, the one whom God has set as king over all things? That's what Christ means. What does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart? Well, firstly, it's something that happens by prayer. It's something spiritual. It's not that you have a little Jesus living in your physical heart. But it is real. As Jesus says in John 4 uh, to the woman at the well, you've got to be born again, born from above, spiritually reborn. And so when we pray, we pray for people's hearts that Christ would be Christ, that Jesus would be the King in our hearts and that that would be not just a kind of lovey-dovey thing, but something that takes power and strength. If you pray for me, pray for my heart that God would strengthen me with His power, that Jesus would not just be, but dwell. The idea of dwell, that Jesus kind of moves in me. His life is in me. Imagine if the life of Jesus flowed out in your life and the life of us as a church. That's Christ dwelling in our hearts. And not just dwelled, but secondly, that your hearts are filled to the fullness of the measure of God. Uh, Did you catch that as we read it there? So uh, verse 17, there's an and halfway through. The second thing Paul prays, the content of prayer, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And he sums it up at the end of verse 19 there, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When you pray, pray that you and the people you're praying for may be filled to the whole measure of the fullness of God. When you see what God is doing in the world, you can't help but pray that people would be transformed into what God wants them to be. The same character as Jesus. That the body will follow the head. That we'd be like him. We pray that we'd be transformed to be like Jesus. What does it look like for you and me to to look like Jesus in the way that we are and live? Well, it looks like what verses 17 to 19 spell out. It's actually all about love. Grounded in love grasping the love of God and it's a weird way to express it but did you see verse 19 to know a love that surpasses knowledge firstly grounded in love Uh, you are grounded in love as a Christian because the thing that started your life Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 was that God showed love to you when you were dead you're grounded and rooted in love because your relationship with him depends not on what you have done but what on on what Christ has done. You are grounded in love. Do you get it? Have you grasped it? Probably not as completely as you could. Uh, What's hard about 
what's hard about grasping the love of God is that actually, I think I'm fairly attractive. Now, you meant to laugh there. Yeah, exactly. But I think, I think there's stuff in me which is a little bit impressive to God. Because when we compare ourselves against each other, I'm like, oh, I'm a bit better than that guy at that. And I don't do what she does. Uh, when we compare ourselves with each other, we forget that uh, our scale of comparison is just minute compared to the holy perfection of God. And that I have nothing to offer God except a broken and contrite heart which says, I don't deserve your love. It's hard to grasp that God loves you. It's difficult to comprehend that God knows you, knows all your doubts about yourself, knows the times when you've disappointed yourself and the people around you. He knows that's what you're like. He knows your fears about putting your life in someone else's hands. And he loves you. He accepts you for who you are. And he has a good plan for you. That's the love in which you are grounded and rooted in Christ. That you are dead, but God showed you mercy. Grounded in love, grasping the love that God has for you. What is that love like, verse 18? It's wide and long and high and deep. Uh, for me, the hardest part of this sermon is trying to convey to you how immense the love of God is for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, washed the feet of his disciples. He humbled himself before them because he treated them as better than himself. In Christ Jesus, God has washed you. Not just your feet, but your, your whole being. You're not who you are because of the great, deep, rich, wide love of God. You've probably made plans this week already to sin just because that's what you're like by nature. The Spirit hasn't completed His work. God loves you despite that. Grasp the love of God, that there is no place you can go, no thing that you can do, no thought that you can think that separates you from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. God loves you. And to know this, to, to get hold of it and let it filter through your whole life, is just a beautiful, beautiful, freeing thing. Imagine for a minute that I was married. I am married. Um, uh, imagine that uh, I was a selfish, selfish prat. Not that hard to imagine. Uh, and uh, that what I did in my marriage and my household was that I let Leah care for me and gave her nothing in return. I just did the things that I wanted on Saturday afternoons. I just watched the footy. And then uh, when it came Saturday night and she wanted to watch some of my TV... I just uh, went to bed or did something else. Uh, I just took, 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 and I didn't really respond at all in love. That's a diabolical relationship. I failed to grasp the idea 
that this woman is going to love me no matter what. The appropriate response to being loved is to love. Now, I'm talking about on a human level, and I keep talking about marriage. It's not just about marriage. This is about what God has demonstrated for you. And if you ever doubt the love of God, you must look at the cross. That Christ died for you when you were his enemy. This is the love of God for you. Not just to make you his own, but to shape your life. That at every moment you would know that you are loved by God, completely secure and so free to live. Free to live as a person who is loved. To know this love, know it in a way that surpasses knowledge. Now, you know, on one level, that doesn't make sense, does it? Can you see it there in verse 19? To know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is why there's poetry in the world. This is why there's art that tries to express a knowledge that's greater than knowledge. A knowledge of God's love, which is bigger than just knowing stuff. So when we pray, we pray that people would know the love of God in a way that's bigger than just knowing stuff. That will be a, a massive knowledge that shapes all of life. And we do this as we pray because, well, it's a work that God has to do. You can't just do it by yourself. When Paul prays, when Paul prays in this case, the content of his prayer is that we would know the love of God more and more and more, that you keep grasping its immensity. Do you pray that for the people in your small group? Uh, does this shape your prayers when you're standing at the bus stop and you've got a couple of minutes on the train station, on the train, jostled around like a sardine? When you think of praying for people, is this what you pray? That people's hearts would grow in knowledge and love of God. That they get God's love. This is who we are. Uh, but Paul doesn't just finish with the content of what he prays. He gives you a reason to pray it. He kind of, as Ephesians does, zooms back again. Why pray this stuff? Not just that we know God's love, but there's a purpose to what it looks like when people like us grasp the love of God. What will happen when you and I are freed up to live lives shaped by the love of God? Church will be amazing. Not in that you'll come each week and just be blown away emotionally. But the goal of prayer is that the glory of God will be displayed in the church. In Ephesus, part of its display was that Jews and Gentiles, people who hated each other, were one body caring for each other. Our church should be a place, when the love of God is evident, where people who are opposite to each other demonstrate the love that God has demonstrated to them, breaking down the social and cultural and political barriers that existed and being one in spirit and purpose. Now, this is part of the reason we're having a combined service, not because we are vehemently opposed to 10am and all it stands for, but just to demonstrate that though we're different, God has made us one. And that's actually a display of what God is like. God takes people from everywhere, read Isaiah 66, God takes people from everywhere and calls them his own. 
It's the picture of revelation at the end of the Bible. People from everywhere. Not just people like us. People like Alfred. People like Javier. People like, people like the people you've met from everywhere. That God is bringing together to make a display of his grace. Have a look at how he puts it in verse 20. Now, to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What does this prayer work towards as hearts are transformed to grasp the love of God? Glory in the church. Now, I really like this church. I like lots of things about it. I like the welcoming. I like that we walk in the side. I like that people often wear name tags just as, as a display of care for the people who are newish, kind of forgotten people's names and want to have that second half of the conversation that had two weeks ago. I love the music. I love the way that people come here early to serve in a variety of different ways. I love that we're in Newtown and so it's kind of quirky. I like that it's a bit dark but funky. I love a lot of things about this church. I've got a list. I could go on, but I won't. The thing that's actually impressive about this church is that broken people who live day by day doubting themselves, failing to live up to the goals that we set, failing to love God as we know we should, people who fail in relationships, whose hearts are just broken and not able to do the good that we want to do, that a bunch of people like that can get together and display the glory of God. It's just astonishing. We do it through our brokenness. For this reason, Paul says, despite his suffering, which is his glory. See, when you grasp what God is doing in the church, you realize he's not doing it through overt awesomeness, is the phrase I've chosen. God is not doing the glory of God through overt awesomeness. He's doing it through people like Paul in prison for the sake of the gospel, and yet still faithful. He's doing it through Jesus, Jesus' life, an unimpressive life in an unimpressive part of the world that ended very unimpressively until the resurrection. God is displaying his glory in the church through you. God is displaying his glorious grace in his church, as you, broken and feeble as you are, live a life of love. Not perfectly yet, but more and more, as we pray for one another that God would do this thing that he started more and more, as we grasp the great love that God has for us. This church, God's church, will be this object which people see and go, that's astonishing. Tonight, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful time to do it as we pray that God would dwell in us by faith. This is what the bread and the wine are meant for us to remember. That God loves us and has demonstrated us that he's promised to be with us. As you come forward tonight or as you receive the things that you're going to eat and drink, 
Uh, you are meant to remember as you eat that Christ died for you. That Jesus' blood was poured out for you. God has displayed his glory in the, in the death of his son. And your life this week is meant to flow out from that. That you'll live a cross-shaped life. Weak, broken for the sake of others. Full of love, yet unimpressive. Requiring great strength, which only God can provide. So as we come to the Lord's table, it's right for us first to pause and remember who we are. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to let you pray. And in a moment, Roger's going to lead us in a prayer of confession.